and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Gotzi, and I am still recording from Freiburg, Germany, where I actually have a new microphone. If you noticed in the last episode that my sound quality has gotten better, it is because after four and a half years of doing this podcast, I finally went out and I bought myself a better microphone, which I think will, you know, make it much more pleasurable for you to be listening to me when I read the following installments of the workers' opposition. So, hey, you know, thumbs up for new microphones, for new technology. I tend to be a bit of a Luddite, and I, <laughs> if a thing is still working, I will just keep using it, even if there are better things that have come out. Uh, I think I bought the last microphone probably eight or nine years ago, and, and I think in the world of technology, that is millennia in terms of technological progress. So anyway, I am going to pick up where I left off in the last episode, uh, talking about the break in the party between the masses who want to maintain workers' control over industry and the party leaders who believe that the only way that Soviet industry is going to get jump-started after the First World War and the Civil War and the famine is by putting specialists in charge, by basically reinstituting the the boss, the the position of boss. And I actually think, you know, I was I was reading this and thinking a lot about remote work and the pandemic and the ways in which so many people now are working at home and they're unsupervised and they're, you know, doing their work. We have some studies that suggest that people are being just as productive at home as they were in the office. But what happens when workers are kind of in charge of their own work schedules and their own pace is that we kind of lose the need for bosses. Bosses, the 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 category of employee called a boss or, you know, a supervisor or somebody who's supposed to be in charge of telling other people what they should be doing kind of becomes superfluous. Um, and I think it's really interesting because this is a moment in the early Soviet economy where the Bolsheviks really faced a crossroads. They could kind of maintain their promises to the working classes and let the working classes, let the workers themselves decide how to jumpstart the industry, how to organize their working days to give them control over the industrial processes, or they could basically go back to the old model of having foremen and having bosses in charge of telling people what to do and organizing production. And clearly, you know, this was an argument that the workers' opposition was going to lose, but this piece, this pamphlet that Kalantai wrote for them I think really lays out fascinating arguments in favor of workers' autonomy, which even though it was written in 1921, still remain really pretty relevant to the present day as we think about the future of work and the way that work is going to change. So I'm picking up here on in the section called The Causes of the Crisis. Before considering the basic points of the controversy between the leaders of our party and the workers' opposition, it is necessary to find an answer to the question, how could it happen that our party, 
formerly strong, mighty, and invincible because of its clear-cut and firm-class policy began to depart from its program. The dearer the Communist Party is to us, just because it has made such a resolute step forward on the road to the liberation of the workers from the yoke of capital, the less right do we have to close our eyes to the mistake of leading centers. The power of the party must lie in the ability of our leading centers to detect the problems and tasks that confront the workers and to pick up the tendencies which they have been able to direct so that the masses might conquer one more of the historical positions. So it was in the past, but it is no longer so at present. Our party not only reduces its speed, but more often, wisely looks back and asks, have we not gone too far? Is this not the time to call a halt? Is it not wiser to be more cautious and to avoid daring experiments unseen in the whole history? What was it that produced this wise caution, particularly expressed in the distrust of the leading party centers towards the economic industrial abilities of the labor unions? Caution that has lately overwhelmed all our centers. Where is the cause? If we begin to diligently to search for the cause of the developing controversy in our party, it becomes clear that the party is passing through a crisis which was brought about by three fundamental causes. The first main basic cause is the unfortunate environment in which our party must work and act. The Russian Communist Party must build communism and carry into life its program, A, in the environment of complete destruction and breakdown of the economic structure, B, in the face of a never-diminishing and ruthless pressure of the imperialist states and the white guards, and C, to the working class of Russia has fallen the lot of realizing communism, creating new communist forms of economy in an economically backward country with a preponderant peasant population, where the necessary economic prerequisites for socialization of production and distribution are lacking, and where capitalism has not as yet been able to complete the full cycle of its development from the unlimited struggle of competition of the first stage of capitalism to its highest form, the regulation of production by capitalist unions, the trusts. It is quite natural that all these factors hinder the realization of our program, particularly in its essential part, in the reconstruction of industries on the new basis and inject into our Soviet economic policy diverse influences and a lack of uniformity. Out of this basic cause follows the two others. First of all, the economic backwardness of Russia and the domination of the peasantry within its boundaries create that diversity and inevitably detract the practical policy of our party from the clear-cut class direction consistent in principle and theory. Any party standing at the head of a heterogeneous Soviet state is compelled to consider the aspirations of peasants with their petty bourgeois inclinations and resentments towards communism.
as well as lend an ear to the numerous petty bourgeois elements, remnants of the former capitalists in Russia, and to all kinds of traders, middlemen, petty officials, etc. These have very rapidly adapted themselves to the Soviet institutions and occupy responsible positions in the centers, appearing in the capacity of agents of different commissariats, etc., No wonder that Zarupa, the People's Commissar of Supplies, at the 8th Congress quoted figures which showed that in the service of the Commissariat of Supplies, there were engaged 17% of workers, 13% of peasants, less than 20% of specialists, and that of the remaining, more than 50% were tradesmen, salesmen, and similar people, in the majority even illiterate. In Zarupa's opinion, this is a proof of their democratic constitution, even though they have nothing in common with the class proletarians, with the producers of all wealth, and with the workers in the factory and mill. These are the elements, the petty bourgeois elements widely scattered through the Soviet institutions, the elements of the middle class with their hostility towards communism and with their predilections towards the immutable customs of the past, with resentments and fears toward revolutionary arts. These are the elements that bring decay into our Soviet institutions, breeding there an atmosphere altogether repugnant to the working class. There are two different worlds, and hostile at that. And yet we, in Soviet Russia, are compelled to persuade both ourselves and the working class that the petty bourgeoisie and middle classes— not to speak of well-to-do peasants, can quite comfortably exist under the common motto, all power to the Soviets, forgetful of the fact that in practical everyday life, the interest of the workers and those of the middle classes and peasantry imbued with petty bourgeois psychology must inevitably clash rending the Soviet policy asunder and deforming its clearest class statutes. Beside peasant owners in the villages and burger elements in the cities, our party in its Soviet state policy is forced to reckon with the influence exerted by the representatives of wealthy bourgeoisie now appearing in the form of specialists, technicians, engineers, and former managers of financial and industrial affairs, by who all their past experience are bound to the capitalist system of production. They cannot even imagine any other mode of production but the one which lies within the traditional bounds of capitalist economics. So I'm just going to pause there for a second. And clearly, you know, this is a problem that all socialist economies are going to face if they are not at an advanced stage of industrial development, as the Soviet Union was not. They did not have members of the working class who were able to work as engineers or who had experience in trade, in finance, and so on and so forth. And so here, what Kalantai is arguing is rather than using or, you know, like re-employing the old middle classes and the old members of the petty, the petty bourgeois, she calls them, right? She says, you know, basically there's an argument like give the power to the workers, get rid of these people who are 
infected with capitalism. They Their whole entire life experience is about capitalist enterprises. And so we need to get rid of them and replace them with people who are committed to building socialism. Now, the irony of this, I think, is that, you know, after 1989 in Eastern Europe or 1991 in the Soviet Union, when formerly socialist enterprises were privatized, one of the first things that they did was fire all the staff and they hired people who had experience and commitments to building capitalism. This is particularly true where I am in Germany. The East German industrial base was basically eviscerated by this process of purging or lustrating out all of the previous socialist managers and engineers and 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 people who had been in positions of of authority within the enterprises so that they could replace them with good capitalists and Kalantai is basically saying in 1921 that rather than trying to build socialist industry with the expertise of people who only have experience in capitalism it would be much better to build socialism with people who are committed to building socialism, even if they don't necessarily have all the experience. So this is going to be a big problem all throughout the socialist bloc, and different countries dealt with it in, in different ways. All right, so the next section is called The Growing Influence of the Specialists. And here, the specialist is Colin Tai's code word for these, you know, petty bourgeois and middle class experts that are taking over in positions of power and authority within the Soviet industry. The more Soviet Russia finds itself in need of specialists in the sphere of technique and management of production, the stronger becomes the influence of these elements, foreign to the working class, on the development of our economy. Having been thrown aside during the first period of the revolution and being compelled to take up an attitude of watchful waiting or sometimes even open hostility towards the Soviet authorities, particularly during the most trying months, the historical sabotage by the intellectuals, this group of brains in capitalist production of servile, hired, well-paid servants of capital acquire more and more influence and importance in politics with every day that passes. Do we need names? Every fellow worker, carefully watching our foreign and domestic policy, recalls more than one such name. As long as the center of our life remained at the military fronts, the influence of these gentlemen directing our Soviet policy, particularly in the sphere of industrial reconstruction, was comparatively negligible. Specialists, the remnants of the past, by all their nature closely, unalterably bound to the bourgeois system that we aim to destroy, gradually begin to penetrate into our Red Army, introducing there their atmosphere of the past, blind subordination, servile obedience, distinctions, ranks, and the arbitrary will of superiors in place of class discipline, etc., But their influence did not extend to the general political activity of the Soviet Republic. The proletariat did not question their superior skill to direct military affairs, fully realizing through their healthy class instinct that in military matters, the working class as a class cannot express a new world, is powerless to introduce substantial changes into the military system, to reconstruct its foundation on a new class basis. Professional militarism 
and inheritance of past ages, militarism and wars will have no place in communist society. The struggle will go on along other channels, will take quite different forms inconceivable to our imagination. Militarism lives through its last days, through the transitory epoch of dictatorship, and therefore it is only natural that the workers as a class could not introduce into the forms and systems anything new and conducive to the future development of society. Even in the Red Army, however, there were innovating touches of the working class, but the nature of militarism remained the same, and the direction of military affairs by the former officers and generals of the old army did not draw the Soviet policy in military matters away to the opposite side sufficiently for the workers to feel any harm to themselves or to their class interests. In the sphere of national economy, it is quite different, however. Production, its organization, is the essence of communism. To debar the workers from the organization of industry, to deprive them, that is, their individual organizations, of the opportunity to develop their powers in creating new forms of production in industry through their unions, to deny these expressions of the class organization of the proletariat, while placing full reliance on the skill of specialists trained and taught to carry on production under a quite different system of production— is to jump off the rails of scientific Marxist thought. That is, however, just the thing that is being done by the leaders of our party at present. Taking into consideration the utter collapse of our industries while still clinging to the capitalist mode of production— payment for labor in money, variations in wages received according to the work done— Our party leaders, in a fit of distrust in the creative abilities of workers' collectives, are seeking salvation from the industrial chaos. Where? In the hands of scions of the bourgeois capitalist past, in businessmen and technicians whose creative abilities in the sphere of industry are subject to the routine habits and methods of the capitalist system of production and economy. They are the ones who introduce the ridiculously naive belief that it is possible to bring about communism by bureaucratic means. They decree where it is now necessary to create and carry on research. The more the military front recedes before the economic front, the keener becomes our crying need. The more pronounced the influence of that group, which is not only inherently foreign to communism, but also absolutely unable to develop the right qualities for introducing new forms of organizing the work, of new motives for increasing production, of new approaches to production and distribution. All these technicians, practical men, men of business experience, who just now appear on the surface of Soviet life, bring pressure to bear upon the leaders of our party through and within the Soviet institutions by exerting their influence on economic policy. All right, so I'm going to stop there. We are slowly making our way through this very important document, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, is longer than other things that I have read on this podcast in a while. But I am not going to abridge this one. I'm going to read it all the way through because I think that it's really important 
to understand the arguments that Kalantai is making on behalf of the workers' opposition and how salient and prescient they were. So, you know, here in these last two sections, she's basically saying, look, you cannot put a bunch of capitalists in charge of a communist economy. It's just not going to work out. They're going to replicate in many ways the structures and incentives of capitalism. And you need to allow the workers, who are the people who supported you in the revolution, the freedom and creativity to actually figure out how to make socialist industry work on a different kind of basis, like not on a planning basis. Now, of course, you know, in to play devil's advocate to Colin Ty, you know, Lenin was looking around at factories where workers had taken charge during the Civil War, for instance, and, you know, they just like voted themselves raises or they voted themselves paid vacation. And some of those factories weren't really working. And, and you know, workers were not necessarily going to be as motivated because they didn't have food. There was a famine going on. And, So during war communism, it sort of made sense for Lenin to kind of force people to centralize production and try to get people back to work and to do his best to sort of centrally plan and organize the economy. But but as Kolontai points out here, the war is over. Yes, there are still remnants of the White Guards. Yes, there are still these internal forces that might undermine the economy. But for the most part, this was the opportunity to give the workers a lot more autonomy over the kind of economy that they would instantiate in the Soviet Union. And, you know, she is making, I think, a very clear critique of the way that we organize labor, even to this day. You know, we basically give people wages, we deprive them of their ability to live, and then we sort of force them to sell their labor on a market so that they can earn wages, so that they can pay their basic expenses. And we tie wages to productivity, or at least in theory, we do that. And Kolontai is here basically saying, what if there are other ways? Maybe the workers will come up with different ways of organizing production that are more creative and more liberating and more free and more flexible. And the Soviets basically didn't even give the workers a chance. And it's a great question. You know, maybe there are other ways of organizing production, but I am not going to speculate on those now because I will get back to reading the workers' opposition in the next episode. So thank you all again so much for listening. If you like this podcast, if you're excited about reading the workers' opposition with me, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It always helps, you know, get the feed the algorithm or something to get the word out there about the podcast, please tell your friends, you can post about it, you can do whatever, I don't know, whatever you do to share information about things that you're listening to or excited to hear more of. I really appreciate everybody's support. uh, And I am excited to be reading this piece. And I hope you are excited to be listening to it. So as always, keep up the good fight. (laughs) 